Hello and welcome to People, Places, Power with me, Nick Cull. And with me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we talk about issues of foreign policy, international reputation, and a few other things along the way. And today, following the death of Queen Elizabeth II of of Britain, we are revisiting questions around uh, the image of the UK and asking, how's it doing? Where's it heading? Uh, And bearing in mind that Britain has a new king uh, and also a new prime minister all in the space of a week. Now, how do we dig into uh, this question? But let's start maybe, Simon, by thinking about uh, the extent to which the monarchy is important to the image of Britain. One of my chief reactions living in the United States to the the passing of the Queen, I was amazed by how interested Americans were uh, and how connected Americans felt to her, uh, both news organizations and then interpersonal relations and things on on, uh, social media. It was was clearly a, a big story in the lives of ordinary Americans. Mm. So, um, you know, what, what are we to make of this? And, and do you have any uh, statistics to stand behind the um, uh, raw observation? Uh, nothing, nothing very good, but some, um, some very back-of-the-envelope calculations I've done a few times over the years when people have asked me that same question. What is the contribution of a particular... Uh, member of a royal family, usually a new member of a royal family, um, to the, the the soft power, the profile, the prestige of that family, and thence to to the country. And I was I was looking back, and I saw that I did some some calculations when Kate Middleton, as she then was, now the Duchess of Cambridge, uh, married into the British royal family, and and I was asked by. A number of people. Uh, what what is she bringing? This was um, because she already had a very significant profile, and the media were rather obsessed by her. So um, <laughs> now I warn you, this really is back of the envelope. But this this was the way I thought it through. Um, I I have a figure for the brand value of the United Kingdom um, in dollars. This was thanks to a collaboration I did with a company called Brand Finance many years ago. Mm-hmm. They're a company who who measure brand value normally for corporations. And I went to them and said, let's have a go and see if we can do that for some countries um, using the Nation Brands Index data. And they did. And we ended up with this rather surprising figure of um, 59,298,000 US dollars of brand value per capita in the UK. So each British citizen is entitled to, or in a sense is the fiduciary owner of $59 million worth of brand value just from being British. <laughs> so we're better off than we thought. And and then what I did was I did a, I did a basket of um, republics that had roughly similar GDP per capita and appeared in the same sort of area in the Human Development Index just to make sure that they were good tokens. So I looked at Germany, France, and Italy, who all qualify from those uh, on, on those two criteria. 
And um, basically what I did was I took the brand value per capita of each British person away from the average brand value per capita of people living in Germany, France, and Italy. Mm -hmm. That gave us um, a putative reputational premium created by having a monarchy. And it ended mm -hmm. up being about, so it, it looked as if the, the, the average citizen of a monarchy, or this monarchy at any rate, has 8% more in terms of brand equity, if you like, through their nationality than somebody who comes from a republic. Um, now, that seemed very high indeed. So I cross-checked it by comparing three other European monarchies, um, Spain, mm -hmm. Denmark, and Sweden, against their mm -hmm. basket comparator republics. And that, that pulled the royal premium down to a much more modest and probably more likely 2%. So 2% mm -hmm. of the total brand value of the UK, um, which is 3.5 trillion, um, means that the British royal family in total are worth $71.2 billion to the value of the United Kingdom. Ooh, um, still a lot. Big numbers. So there are 22 members of the, there were at the time 22 members of the inner royal family. So logically, you, if they were shared, if, if their contribution to brand value, value was shared out equally, you would expect um, Kate Middleton's personal brand contribution to be about 4.5% of that figure. In other words, 3.2 billion pound, uh, dollars, rather. Um, I think that's probably an understatement because obviously mm -hmm. there are some some of those 22 members of the royal family who are not known in public and don't have particularly mm -hmm. high prominence. Kate had a very, very um, a wide audience at the time. So, you know, you could probably, without um, running too many risks, double that and say that she's worth 6.4 billion. But either way, um, I'm not a, a monarchist particularly, and, and, and I do want to stress that I'm not talking about the politics or the justice of the thing. I'm just looking at it objectively in terms of what it does for national profile. And in that context, it does look like pretty good value. Um, this all started because I did the same thing for Princess Mary of Denmark and calculated mm -hmm. that um, she contributed 12 billion US dollars to the brand value of Denmark. And her salary at the time was 2 million a Danish krona, $270,000. So basically, she gives a return on investment of 44,000%. Um, <laughs> That's and, a heck of a deal. <laughs> and, and so I would, I would guess that uh, Duchess of Cambridge is even more than that if she's, if she's bringing in uh, $6.4 billion worth of brand equity. So but, I know, mean, it's, it's a game, but it's, it makes one think. But if you know, the, the, uh, we we know that um, uh, the most important thing for a country is to be relevant to an international audience, mm. and um, to the, the spectacle of the death of a monarch, uh, a funeral, and then a coronation. These are very compelling um, public events and they're, they're in, uh, a reason for people to pay attention to, um, uh, to, 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 to Britain. So uh, simply from the, the point of view of spectacle, um, it's a, a positive, um, to say it's a positive moment, uh, uh, I think belays the, the, the sadness that people feel, but it's an opportunity for Britain to be seen and talked about and to show um, 
how uh, the country is now. And, and looking at uh, Prince Charles's, sorry, King Charles's first uh, speech, um, I, I was very interested that um, he spoke about Britain's many cultures and many faiths and his feeling about that and his pride in that before he spoke about his role as head of the Church of England. So providing uh, signals uh, uh, about uh, the transition of Britain towards a, a successful um, multicultural, multi-faith democracy, uh, mm. that already seems to be happening. Uh, mm. But then, you know, if we jump over to the other transition that's happening, that is the um, uh, arrival of uh, Liz Truss in uh, Downing Street and her cabinet, um, which is the first British cabinet to have no um, white males in the key positions of state um, mm. and to really be a, a, a showcase of um, diversity, um, whether that was planned or is just who's left uh, at the end of all the party uh, shenanigans um, we've seen over the last couple of years. I, I don't know, but it's a very striking thing uh, to see someone like um, Kwasi Kwarteng in the uh, role of Chancellor of the Exchequer yeah. uh, is notable. And I think when seen by the world, if you imagine the, 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 the funeral of the Queen with the great, uh, the front bench where you expect to see the, the principal figures of the British government being taken by women and uh, women of colour, men of colour, um, that's a remarkable change to how Britain looked even uh, 20 years ago, uh, let alone how Britain looked uh, the last time we had a coronation. Yes, and it's a very important aspect of the of the changes that uh, Queen Elizabeth has presided over. Um, that's been the story of the history of the United Kingdom and much of the world over the last seventy years, while she while she was on the throne. Mm -hmm. um, that societies have become more mixed, more plural, more open. Um, it hasn't been and will continue not to be um, a peaceful. Um, or a calm transition, but it's a transition that had to happen and is happening. So, in a in a in a sense, there's some there's some symmetry there, isn't it? Isn't there the, the the first cabinet within within days of the passing of Queen Elizabeth is a cabinet which shows us how far we've come. Mm -hmm. And and often this is the way that it takes a major uh, event um, to. Uh, illuminate the transitions uh, in national life and thinking back 25 years to the funeral of Princess Diana um, there were big cultural changes visible there I, I was struck uh, on that occasion by the way in which same-sex relationships were being spoken about as a normal thing and when Elton John arrived with his partner uh, that was just uh, you know commented on uh, uh, um, by uh, um, whichever Dimbleby was doing the, the, uh, the commentary uh, as the most natural thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And yet that was still quite, quite a new thing to see uh, mm -hmm. in, in um, uh, British public life. Yes. Um, and and, and, I, and I, I think you could, you could argue that that's, uh, that's one of the benefits that a monarchy can bring is that it acts as a sort of metronome 
by which we can keep time and keep account of the changes in society, because that's a clock that ticks very slowly. Um, societies can't change, can't cope with rapid change. Um, and it occurs at a pace that's too slow for most people to conceive of it day by day. But what royalty does is, um, by being there and being present and, and, and often being involved in those big social, cultural, political and economic changes, they help us to read our own history in a way mm -hmm. um, which is quite unusual um, in, in republics and in other forms of government, that, that there is something to that continuity which is useful, if only if it only were possible to find a way of doing it that were more fair. Um, yes, depend in, on including the... being fair to monarchs. Um, yeah. You know, I was thinking as a, a, about the, the, the Queen talking about her uh, service mm. and uh, Prince Charles talking about his mother's sacrifices mm. uh, and... Um, you know, the more you read about uh, that that family, you realize that um, it wasn't easy. Uh, we we you know focus on the planes and the yachts and the palaces, but I I don't think I'd want the job. Um, uh, I don't think I'd want that level of uh, of scrutiny. That I think there are tremendous uh, sacrifices and distortions that come to uh, yes. to that position, um, which. It certainly is of benefit to us collectively, but yes. it's asking uh, asking a lot. It's interesting, isn't it? Because so so many of the negative com uh, comments that one one has heard are just about uh, about their wealth, as if that were the most important thing in the world. Um, and you know, saying that somebody has got more money than anybody else, you've said everything there is to be said about them. Um, and I think that if we took a leaf out of Bhutan's book and began to value happiness more than prosperity, we'd begin to realize that that's, um, that's, a, that's a more complicated balance than perhaps we first perceived it to be. I think for an awful lot of people, it's very simple. She, you know, she had a yacht, she had cars, she had houses. She was the richest woman in the world. Therefore, she has everything. Um, <laughs> but of course, it isn't quite that simple. And almost everybody who's ever come into large amounts of money very quickly realizes that um, well, it doesn't necessarily make you happy. Yes, as, uh, as the Beatles said, money can't buy your love. Um, mm. But uh, I like what you were saying about uh, uh, change and uh, the monarchy providing stability in change. And it's almost like a metaphor for change is to compare um, the way that the Queen spoke uh, in her early broadcasts and mm. how she spoke at the end of her life because her accent has mm. shifted. Her manner of speaking has shifted along with the um, accents of uh, you know, anyone with any sensitivity in British life. And mm. uh, it, it's really striking how um, uh, the, the transformation that has, has, has taken place. But do you think this is seen internationally um, that Britain has transitioned, or uh, and and when you look at um, the nation brands data mm. on the UK, are people still seeing the Britain of the nineteen eighties? Uh, no, on the whole, not. Um, it, it seems that uh, in in all of the research that Britain 
is a country that 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 has two images, um, and you and I have, have spoken about this before. Um, it's got a more it's got an old fashioned image, which, if you like, is the um, um, is the image of expensive television dramas about people living in grand houses. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's got a more modern one, which, if you like, is the um, is the Britain of the Olympic Games. That was the Britain that was on show there, rather comical and rather um, light and fun and devastating, mm-hmm. youthful. And mm-hmm. um, people's perceptions of the UK tend to sort of cluster around those two poles. Some people like the very crusty, old-fashioned, heritage-ridden um, side of Britain, which is evidenced by the royal family, the continuity, mm-hmm. the conservatism, the um, length of history and all the rest of it. Some people like the modernity, um, the um, scientific achievements, but more importantly, mm-hmm. the cultural and artistic achievements, and so on and so forth. Some people like both, some people like neither, and some people find themselves thinking about it in one way or another, depending on what's just happened. We were talking about Brexit a few episodes ago, and I pointed out that um, after the Brexit vote happened, a great many people appeared to then go back to thinking that the Downton Abbey version of Britain was the true one. Um, mm-hmm. And the and the Mr. Bean, James Bond um, modern version was the false one. But that's now beginning to go away again because people have lost interest in Brexit, well, people outside uh, Western Europe anyway, um, and have stopped thinking about it because the world hasn't fallen apart and nothing appears to have changed. So we're back again now to thinking about both sides. You're, you're right when you say that this is an important moment for perceptions of Britain because Exactly as you said, as a result of what's happening, a lot of people around the world are pausing and thinking about this country and what it means. And they're thinking about it in a much deeper way than you normally do think about other countries. Mm-hmm. It's with, with, a, with a pause for reflection, thinking about where it's come from, thinking about your own associations or perceptions of it, your own dealings with mm-hmm. it, perhaps, over the whole length of your lifetime, unless you're very yes. old indeed. And that's a precious thing for a country because when people are paying that much attention and they're thinking that calmly about something it can really stoke the fire of their feelings towards that country and or perhaps a better metaphor would be recharge the battery of their feelings yes, towards yeah. that country for a good long time to come so to answer your question uh, no on the whole most people don't think as much about britain or as highly of britain as they used to um, when you and I were young, when um, it was very much more present in the world and very much more mm-hmm. of a significant political player. I'm glad that it's not <laughs> anymore, but one of the prices of that is that it has a much lower profile. Most people have heard of it. Most people know a little something about it, but it's not on their minds or in their thoughts the whole time unless they're in dealings with it. So, you know, it's surprise, surprise, just another country like any other. So um, what, what, what do you think um, Liz Truss, as the incoming prime minister, should do to maintain the image of Britain? What should her priorities be? Uh, I wonder if she's even thinking about Britain's image as being 
something that she has a responsibility to maintain. The, the absolute number one thing that she should stop doing um, is playing to the uh, to the, the 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 nationalist gallery um, yes. back home. Yes, saying things like the jury is still out on whether France is a friend <laughs> and ally of the United Kingdom or not. Um, I, I mean, what a shocking, shocking, stupid thing to say. Um, and, and, Unbelievably stupid. Yeah, um, well, I thought um, it was kind of crazy when she said that the the British Conservative Party was the greatest political party on the planet. I mean, that's it. Just seems uh, yeah. It, it seems ridiculous. It seems ridiculously overstated. Yeah, I'm afraid she's not terribly clever. But one of the things that she she must realize is that in a, pro, a post Brexit world, it is very, very, very much more important than it ever has been before for Britain to be friendly towards other nations, especially our trading partners um, and our closest <laughs> neighbours. And there's nothing to be gained um, internationally or domestically uh, by picking fights with countries just because they're foreign. No, and, and just to get your base, uh, just to sort of throw a little raw meat over your shoulder to your uh, power base. But... Um, I, I, I think that we can maybe see um, some uh, uh, interesting priorities in uh, Prince Charles's, uh, sorry, King Charles, second time with that, King Charles's agenda uh, for, for the for coming, coming weeks. He's putting a, a priority on visiting uh, each of the constituent nations of the United Kingdom mm. um, and uh, being seen in person in Northern Ireland, Wales, Scotland. Um, I think that's interesting, uh, placing an, an emphasis on uh, national unity. Um, and I think that will be, um, uh, will pl play well both at home and, and overseas. But in his early remarks, he said this thing um, in his speech, or what was it about? I I'm going to have to step back from my charities and causes. Mm. And I wonder the extent to which this is a good idea. Hmm. Uh, and he also talked about the the uh, constitutional position of the king being, um, uh, which which I you know assume meant being neutral in uh, in in politics. Hmm. Um, what do you think the role of the British monarch, or indeed any monarch, should be on the great issues of the day? Because, you know, Prince Charles is somebody who, ha as Prince Charles, uh, he was very involved in comments around climate. Hmm. Now, as King Charles III, he has an opportunity to speak about the climate in a different kind of way as hmm. a, a person who has the the attention of the world yeah. uh, and um i hope personally that he can see that as being an issue a moral issue uh that is above party politics and yeah. that is open to him uh, um what within his role as um monarch um yes. how yes. do you expect that he will cope with that uh and is that the sort of thing that monarchs in the 21st century should be talking about? Um, climate change, for sure. And the timing, again, is is very right, because 
we we are now just we have just reached the stage where climate change is accepted and therefore no longer regarded as being a political position. Um, anthropogenic climate change is a fact, mm-hmm. um, and the need for us to combat it is a fact. So um, Prince Charles should not, cannot, and will not drop climate change because it's too political for a monarch to talk about. It's not political. Um, It's no longer political. It's a fact about humanity, and it's a fact about the planet, and it's a fact about life on Earth. So um, I hope that it will continue to form the the undercurrent of everything he does and everything he says. Maybe the the precedent for this could be the difference between speaking about Anglo-German relations in the 1930s and speaking about it in the 1940s. That in the 40s, you're in the midst of a struggle, and the king has to speak about uh, rallying against this terrible force in the world, but we we didn't expect that in the the 30s. It was expected that the king would stand back from uh, those kinds of issues. Yes, I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, he doesn't really have a choice when it comes to giving up the other stuff, the charities and so forth, because he now has a very different job from the one that he's been doing up until now. And, And the job of heir apparent is in some respects Although it must have its frustrations, it's quite a privileged position because he has um, he has enormous power of speech um, and yes. enormous powers to convene people and to be listened to. But not well. I, I was going to say not too many day to day responsibilities. That's unfair because he has a very, yes. a, very busy, a very busy life, as as do all the royals. But the job of being head of state, even in a polity like the United Kingdom, where head of state is 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 um, primarily um, ceremonial, nonetheless, that's a very big job um, and a mm. very different one from the one he's done. So he'll he he'll be too busy to do a lot of that kind of stuff. You, you ask what the importance of that figurehead is. Well, it's terribly important just because of the way that human beings are. We we love. People are the only thing we're really interested in in the end. Absolutely. The only thing that we really think that we understand. And as a result of that, we tend to personify everything and every and every phenomenon. And the way in which we leap to personifying countries um, through the figure of their great sons and daughters, the figures of their of, of their great sons and daughters, is noticeable. And we've spoken before about this. Um, the reason why Queen Elizabeth was so important to the United Kingdom was because she was such an important figure internationally. Everybody knew who the Queen of England was. And right. if that didn't do something for the image of the country of which she was queen, then I'm a Dutchman. Uh, of course it did. Yes. Because that's the way yes. we like to think of things. And so the question is, to what extent um, can King Charles wear that heavy crown? Um, we're getting a bit Shakespearean yes. here. Um, yes, that's right. He, he has the opportunity to be the personification of the United Kingdom. Um, can well, he carry- in a way, he will be the personification, whether we like it or not. Well, uh, and no way around that. If he bores us and if he bores everybody else, then he will cease to personify anything. He'll just be ignored. And the, and the overall image of the United Kingdom will remain probably at the point at which it was on the day his mother died. Um, but if he steps up to the mark and, um, and does things and says things and is visible and active and admirable, then he will continue to 
to um, to pay the rent on the country's image. Well, you know, let's just kick this into high gear as we as we round round things off. Uh, you and I have often remarked on the, um, the the challenges we face today being too big for any one country to solve. We have remarked in the past that we need people to rally public opinion, to speak out, to lead uh, cooperation and uh, um, uh, direct attention to these problems. Do you think there's a role for monarchs as being that um, uh, voice uh, at a level above politics mm. to help to bring opinion together around around the pro- the, the, the shared um, the shared uh, 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 problems of our time. Yeah, well, I um, I had a um, a notion which I called monarchy two point zero, uh, which <laughs> very good, which I, very good, which I which I proposed to uh, a friend of mine who's who's a, a royal prince a few years ago when we were talking about. <laughs> Sorry, can we pause for that? As one does, I think is how you react to that. So, uh, what, what did you say to your friend, the prince? <laughs> and we were we were talking about the role of the royal of, of royal family members in the twenty first century and all the rest of it. And it began to occur to me that he was he was a man who, like many of his sort, is a bit frustrated because he's received a, a fabulous world class education. He's been trained in the values of duty and public service since he was tiny. Uh, He knows an awful lot about politics and international affairs. He's got um, an address book to die for. He's -hmm. somebody who can ring up Bill Gates and Bill Gates will answer the phone and listen to what he has to say. And yet he's not allowed to really do anything because the country that he comes from is another one where the monarchy are largely ceremonial. And so that creates frustration. So well trained to do politics, but not allowed to do politics. So my suggestion was, let's all put our heads together and see if we can create some kind of international or maybe international Senate, a council of elders that mm-hmm. made up of these royals. And any country that has a royal family can send uh, their, their royals um, as envoys to this global Senate. And their job is to think only and exclusively about international issues from climate change and pandemics downwards. They're not allowed to uh, push the interests of their own country because that would be frowned on. And anyway, usually their constitution forbids it. Um, All they're allowed to to discuss uh, in a completely equal, unbiased and objective way. And because most of them are um, not only well-educated, they're also old, some of them. They've got a lot of experience there and a good position to be senators. And they're schooled in international thinking and they have a view of the world. Let's make use of them. Instead of pouring tax money into continuing to educate them, for what? For nothing. Just to sit in the background being tourist attractions. So that, that was my little suggestion, my modest proposal, which I'm expecting to be machine gunned for. But... Uh, it's worth a <laughs> well, I, somebody has to uh, somebody has to speak out. Somebody has to pr- provide uh, the leadership because that's a precondition for people coming together. And um, uh, one of the major deficits we we um, face right now is credibility. Who has the credibility to speak and be taken seriously? 
Mm. Um, so maybe Charles the uh, Third can can speak and can uh, make a difference in 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 um, in that regard. Yes, I think as acting head of state, he probably wouldn't be appropriate for the. Uh... For the for the senator, of, um, but uh, other members of the family, why not? Why not? There, there is an organization, as, as as you know, called the Elders, uh, which is a, which is a private organization of ex um, heads of government, heads of state, uh, diplomats, and so forth, and they perform a role not dissimilar uh, from the one I'm talking about, more of a an advisory panel than a think tank. Um, but it's an indication this kind of thing can work. I, I think I'm probably suggesting something that's under the aegis of the United Nations and is a bit more official. So a lot to look at in the weeks and months ahead, culminating in um, the coronation of King Charles III um, and uh, a lot to talk about going forward. I think that's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I'm still Nick Cole. And I'm still Simon Anhold.